Okay, good morning. Thank you very much for getting up early, or perhaps some of you are still awake from the morning after the, morning after the night before. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. We put on these events with the generous assistance of partners and hosts. I'd particularly like to draw your attention to the American or the Anglo-American nature of all of our partners. Edelman, in whose office enviable environment we are this morning, um, with Newsweek, with the Bank of New York Mellon, and with Taylor Bennett. Taylor Bennett are a communications consultancy, and they have... Uh, I think a rather interesting string to their bow, and I think I'm right in saying they recruited James Rubin into the British communications world when he finished being an advisor to President Clinton, and if I know them at all, they'll be scouring the newly formed Obama administration to pluck them off one by one. The whole point of this event is to really bring the world of commentary in the UK about key issues together with some of the key players. Before I hand over to you, I'm going to say two things. One is that this is on the record and podcast for posterity, so that when you get your chance to speak, make sure that you don't say anything you might wish not to have said afterwards. And the second is to introduce to you with great pleasure Woody Kerr from the Bank of New York Mellon, who is uh, co-chair here in EMEA. He tells me that he is a New Yorker, but I think there's a little bit of him in Ohio, and he's just going to... Uh, say a few words, and then I'm going to hand over to our host, Stryker Maguire. If you've turned on any television channel at all lately, you will have seen Stryker. Stryker's lists of credits are so long that we would be here all morning and not talk about anything else, but suffice to say, he is probably the most illustrious American commentator here. He's uh, now a contributing editor to Newsweek, and we're delighted to have him. So he will chair this event and do the housekeeping, and I'm just going to hand over now to Woody Kerr. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Uh, one of my colleagues just told me, remember, less is more, and I hope not to let him down. But uh, on behalf of my colleagues here uh, from the Bank of New York Mellon, our 6,000 uh, people here in the UK and 9,000 across Europe, we're delighted to be a co-sponsor uh, of this important event this morning. In a little over two months, uh, Barack Obama will raise his right hand and utter a 35-word oath and become the 44th president in the United States. And clearly, uh, he's promised change in the campaign, and I think it's probably change that uh, we'll be hearing about this morning. Uh, at the Bank of New York Mellon, uh, we, we are, uh, play a very central role in the world financial markets. Uh, we are the largest custodian with $23 trillion of securities under custody and administration globally, largest corporate trustee, largest depository receipts bank, and an asset manager with an excess of $1 trillion in assets under management. Uh, we're doing extremely well as a company. Uh, we're delighted uh, to be, be here today. Um, certainly as an American living in London, as Julia mentioned, uh, and as a banker, I think I'm very interested to hear the views of our panelists today on what this election means to us all. So thank you very much and enjoy the morning. Thank you very much. If I were to read everybody's biography, uh, we would be going right after I finished. So I think uh, I will introduce people very, very briefly. If you want to know more about them, uh, you can get them afterwards, look at their websites and, and so forth. We're at a stage now where the 
we're in the transition period in the United States, and there is uh, there's a famous saying uh, uh, by somebody named Mario Cuomo. Many of you will know him, uh, former governor of New York. He he talked about how one campaigns in in poetry and governs in prose, and we're in that period going from poetry to prose. And we want to be sure when we talk about the prose that we're heading toward that we uh, that we talk about the effect of all of this on the UK and not just uh, look at this from uh, an American perspective, which is why uh, when we begin, I will, I think I'll ask Andrew Roberts to to start. And Andrew, I think many of you know him, a uh, very well-known historian, public intellectual. Um, I think of him as an employee of Radio 4, but that's probably wrong because he's on it so often. <laughs> uh, and then I, I was we have next to Andrew, uh, Mrs. Moneypenny. Now, you can find out about her if you go to the FT website and uh, look her up. And then uh, to her right is Sarah Churchwell. Sarah is, where are you teaching now? At the University of East Anglia. Excellent. Thank you very much. She's at the University of East Anglia and uh, is obviously an American. How long have you been here? Almost 10 years. Okay, good. <laughs> and then to my right, Bill Barnard. We've been together on a number of uh, panels recently, and uh, Bill is, is chair of Democrats Abroad, which played a very interesting role in this campaign. Maybe he will mention that very, very briefly. They, uh, uh, Obama, uh, his campaign was so massively well organized that they actually had a paid campaign worker here in London uh, who helped organize people uh, get out the vote and uh, and raised a very significant uh, sum of money for the Obama campaign. So we hear from him as well. Finally, Bronwyn Maddox, uh, many of you read her almost every morning uh, in the Times. She is the chief foreign commentator for the Times, has just returned from Iceland, which is neither here nor there in terms of Barack Obama yet, unless he had some money in the, one of those accounts. Uh, but I think Bronwyn is on her way to America shortly. Uh, but Bronwyn, I hope, also will address, like Andrew, the impact of, uh, of this election on Britain. So anyway, if we could just get started. And we're going to, uh, everybody is going to be very, very good about limiting themselves to five minutes. So Andrew, please start. Thank you very much indeed, um, Stryker. Um, I was uh, under the impression I was going to be speaking last, um, and uh, so my opening line... I was, I was under the impression that I was going to be speaking last. Oh, really? Last. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. My, op my opening line was that the whole of the panel are extremely nice people, but they're all completely wrong. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't sound too good, considering I haven't heard a word they've said. But nonetheless, um, uh, I was also asked earlier on uh, at the thing, I said, somebody said uh, you had to have a heart of stone, you had to be a man with a heart of stone not to celebrate Obama's victory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're very lucky, you have that man. Uh, I, this uh, Obama mania that uh, we've been watching um, over the last uh, 48 hours strikes me so much, so akin to the 1st of May 1997, things can only get better. Uh, the South Bank Centre, do you remember those people trying to dance in the South Bank Centre? Um, that it um, reminds me 
and makes me think how incredibly, even even for an American election, the rhetoric that we've heard from, uh, from both sides, but particularly from Mr. Obama, seems to me to have stoked up expectations that are unsustainable. That uh, even with a landslide, and this was not a landslide, this was 52% against 46.5%. This is not Reagan, this is not Roosevelt. Uh, it only needs 3% of people to change their mind, and he seems to have got quite a lot of votes from independents and republicans. So there are 3% of people out there who in the next four years will change their minds. Um, this is much more like the 1992 uh, election, where within two years you had the, G the Gingrich uh, revolution. He hasn't won the... Um, uh, enough Senate seats to, um, to override filibusters, and he's got uh, two extreme partisans in the case of uh, Pelosi and Reid working for him. He's the first big city um, northern liberal since JFK to be elected, and those, each of those have um, within them the possibility of a, uh, of a reaction over the next um, four years, and as I say, only 3% is needed. Um, I think that the promises uh, to cut taxes for 95% of people, um, which is going to involve, as he admits, capital gain tax and corporation tax increases, uh, a form of Medicare Plus, and uh, a promise to spread the wealth, but during a recession, all also open up big opportunities for him to lose the 3% that he needs to hang on to in order to get re-elected. And as The Economist is about to say in, two, uh, in, in a few days' time, I don't know why I got sent that, uh, the um, internal memo, but nonetheless I did, so I'm going to share it with you. He um, <laughs> said that uh, it, it's going to say that this is going to make it far harder for uh, the foes of America to hate America. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think that this is going to alter the view of America held by Ahmadinejad or bin Laden or indeed Putin, then you've got another thing coming. These guys are going to be thrilled that a man who, uh, res who responded to the South Ossetia crisis by waiting 24 hours, blaming both sides, and then saying we ought to go to the United Nations, um, is in charge of America. What I can see instead of... Um, the whole it might make America's friends love America more, but it's not going to make America's enemies hate her less. The last time we had a moralizer like this was obviously um, President Carter. Instead uh, of, a, uh, of a happier and nicer world, I think that we can look forward to a nuclearized Middle East. There is simply no way that Turkey, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia is going to allow uh, Iran to be the only major nuclearized um, power in that region other than Pakistan. And it is therefore a... Um, we're on the verge of having a nuclearized Middle East under uh, Putin, uh, under. Um, Obama, Putin is, has already moved um, rockets closer to Poland. It doesn't mean he's going to use them, obviously, but he's just going to be edging forward and he's going to be putting pressure on uh, Georgia and Ukraine. And I don't see uh, President Obama who wants to attempt to, um, to use the United Nations as an uh, effective force in the world being able to do anything about these two very serious and very unpleasant dangers. Um, and so, as I say, a moralizer, the last time you had one who made America look weaker was uh, Jimmy Carter. And so um, it strikes me that for somebody who I personally can't get excited 
um, because I never thought of America as a racist country anyway. I think that's a 40-year-old story. Uh, the very fact that the BBC had to use black and white fo uh, f footage to uh, show the, uh, the story last night implies to me that um, although being black obviously has helped him enormously getting elected, it's not necessarily going to help him stay in the White House. And with other problems, whether or not his, his attitude towards the unions, towards NAFTA, towards regulation of financial services, trying to cut 80% of emissions, uh, carbon emissions, and these are massive uh, things that he's going to try to do, and only 3% of people need to be so irritated with him that they don't vote for him again, uh, but instead vote for his opponent. So uh, it seems to me that... Um, uh, you're looking here, like Carter, at a first-term president, and remember, you heard it here first. Thank you very much, Thank indeed. you, Andrew. Uh, Bronwyn, do, do you agree with, with Andrew? Do you take a similarly uh, bracing view? <laughs> I do about the inevitability of disappointment, but, I, no, I, I, but otherwise, no. I think um, it is big for America. The question is to say exactly why. And the newspapers and the television, as you will see in the past 36 hours or so, have um, excelled themselves in inverted sentences and great over-resonant adjectives. But now we get to the point of, of saying, why exactly is it so big for America? And some of the uh, more subtle analysis that's coming out shows how complicated a picture it actually is. Um, I do think the racial... Uh, significance is big within America and outside America, uh, contrary to what, what Andrews said. But I think you have to look at some of the more detailed analysis. CNN had on the night of the election a map almost precinct by precinct across the South, showing that even though Obama won at least a couple of southern states, Florida and, and Virginia, um, which was a, a breakthrough, that precinct by precinct he'd actually done a lot worse than the Democratic contender in the previous two elections, suggesting they, they argued uh, quite a lot of, of uh, resistance still in the South to voting for a, a black person. Um, and I think it's simply a, te a, test of, a test of time. Does this mark a big sh shift left uh, in, in the US? I'm not at all clear that it does in any, in any profound and, and permanent way. A lot of it is a reaction to the, to the Bush years, a vote for change, if you like. But then you come to the day two, day three question again of what does that change mean? Um, and if you look what it means for America... It seems that the enormous difficulty this administration is going to have is that the wall of events heading its way. It's true of any administration, and the, the campaign people are, are very um, um, kind of powerful in the way they describe it. That during campaign, everything goes through a bottleneck of 20 people, maybe you know four at, at, at the top, and then suddenly you have to set up this administration with all the drama and the kind of over theatricality of the first 400 appointments and so on. Um, you have to suddenly go from running everything with four or a couple of dozen people to suddenly a couple of hundred as this enormous wave of events is heading your way. And the economic ones, it seems to me, it can be very hard for Obama to surface from in, in, in the first couple of months. He has to make a lot of decisions very quickly, and he has a Democratic Congress uh, expecting very um, generous and precise things of him. And it seems to me where he is going to disappoint first is 
is the Democratic Congress. He cannot do the things on climate change, on health care, on all kinds of spending that he has promised to do. The Congressional Budget Office, that marvelous institution, which says very dryly about two months before any American election, look, both your numbers don't add up, said so with extra sourness this year. And that was just as the financial um, turmoil had begun to, uh, to bite with, with real force. Um, the McCain numbers didn't add up, and the Obama numbers didn't add up. They can't do neither of them could have done what they promised and that's even more so um, two, two months on and so he's going to have to reconcile those campaign promises to the extent that they were precise with the very precise expectations of that, of that Congress and that is the first political problem that's going to face him it seems to me and it's really going to take him some time to, to, to overcome. <coughs> then he, he is going to be hit from, by events from outside and we've uh, all kind of foreign policy commentators have spent the past week very magisterially going round um, either country by country the threats or in a more modern way theme by theme the problems uh, like uh, climate change and terrorism and so on. Um, but that that gives a very static portrayal, as Andrews just said. Uh, um, President Medvedev's um, first response in, in Russia was a, a kind of grudging congratulation buried in a subclause, uh, combined with uh, a decision to, uh, or an, uh, one of these Russian announcements, to move missiles close to Poland. When I say one of these Russian announcements, I mean, uh, judging by recent patterns, we don't know if it's actually going to happen, but uh, it wasn't... Um, what you might call a friendly gesture. And there are these, these uh, leaders out there who, and, and, and terrorist leaders I include among that, who are going to see it as their uh, reason for getting up in the morning to test the new American president and to present him with all kinds of trouble. Uh, Iran is probably within that, but if I were leading Iran, if I can uh, say that hey, I would not want to attract direct attention at the moment, it seems to be what Iran wants and has successfully got over the past few years is simply more time to keep on with its, its, its nuclear ambitions and to sort out its own immensely complicated politics, but it may well want to stir up the kind of trouble elsewhere in the region that will distract American attention and keep it bogged down. There are a lot of countries that are capable of doing that. The first decisions that Obama is going to have to make are not easy ones and bring him right up against that question that Andrew's just raised of how much do his allies really love him, never mind how much do his enemies hate him. And the first of those is whether to put much more troops into Afghanistan. And along with that, this very complicated diplomatic question of whether to start talking to the Taliban. And there's been all kinds of rhetoric come out in the Obama campaign none of it very clear about whether America should now talk to its, its, its enemies um, or people who've been very difficult, Taliban, Iran, uh, uh, among those. Um, so there is, there, is a, there is a difficult question of the new administration's approach to all kinds of foreign policy things, which is captured in the, in the first early decisions. He's going to have to ask NATO to give more troops to Afghanistan. Most of NATO is going to want to say no. Britain has already said no, but it seems to me it's going to have to rethink that. Very hard to pin as many hopes on Obama as many European countries have done and refuse him the first thing that he will ask for, which he will ask for at, l at the latest by the NATO summit in April. 
So there's all kinds of things, and that's just the foreseeable, that are going to make quite an uncomfortable start to this. I still revert to my first point. I do think it's big for America. It's, 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 it's an enormous mandate. Uh, um, it is a mandate for a very different approach from the Bush years. And however fuzzy some of Obama's promises have been, his promise of a change of tone within America and outside America has been quite clear. And I think that's what people have backed. But we still don't know what's coming. And the fact is an awful lot of people uh, sitting around the, the planet planning to give him a lot of difficult decisions very fast. Thank you very much. Now, Bill, as, as somebody who was so close to this campaign, I suspect you're still in poetry <laughs> mode, but uh, let us know what you're thinking. <laughs> sure. I'll return to foreign policy at the end of my remarks, but just to stay at the, say at the outset that Bronwyn's position is much closer to mine than Andrew's, I must say. Uh, I think it's understandable that we have focused so much on the personality of a truly extraordinary candidate that we have perhaps overlooked something that's happening underneath the surface that goes beyond and even precedes his candidacy. It takes nothing away from the particular characteristics and the qualities as a person and as a candidate of Barack Obama, nor does it take anything away from the admiration that I and anyone, regardless of party affiliation, who has been involved in politics for any length of time, uh, have for the kind of campaign that they run, ran. I've been involved in American politics for over 40 years, and I've never seen one run with quite uh, the efficiency and uh, purpose and success as this one was. But I think there, underneath, there are some seismic changes taking place in American politics. Uh, you saw, in fact, I think, uh, on election night, the tectonic plates of American politics begin to move. And let me say what I, explain what I mean by that. Uh, and it takes some awareness of the American party system over a period of time. Throughout most of American politics for the last 150 years, there's been one dominant party who, in any normal election, would elect the president and both houses of Congress. That was true, for example, from 1896 to 1932, a 36-year period in, of Republican dominance. In that 36 years, there was only one Democrat who served, and that was Woodrow Wilson, and he was elected only because the Republican Party was split and there was a third-party candidate, the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. From 1932 to 1968, a period of Democratic dominance, there was only one Republican who served, and that was Dwight Eisenhower, a war hero who four years before he ran was assumed to be a Democrat, and, and some liberal Democrats, including FDR's son, tried to get him to run against Harry Truman for the Democratic nomination. In 1968, another critical election, another transformative election, as political scientists and historians call it, um, you saw with Richard Nixon's strategy of peeling off certain elements of the Democratic coalition on cultural and social issues, you saw the rise of a, an incipient Republican majority that would dominate for the next generation. It was, it was not wholly consummated in part because of Watergate and also because later Ronald Reagan, who followed the same strategy of splitting off the so-called Reagan Democrats, uh, was unable to transfer his personal popularity to uh, that of his party. Nonetheless, for the last 40 years, since 1968, there have been only three Democratic terms uh, as president, only 12 of the 40 years, and one of those was Jimmy Carter, elected in the wake of Watergate, otherwise probably would not have been elected, and, Jim, and um, Bill Clinton, who was elected twice, neither time getting more than 50 percent of the vote, and winning in 1992, solely because, again, there was a very strong third-party candidate. I think you may very well have seen on Tuesday evening a critical election again, a realigning election. The rise of a new coalition to dominance in American domestic politics uh, that will dominate for the next uh, generation. Uh, 
Now, a lot depends, obviously, upon the success of the administration. I'm a little more hopeful than Andrew is, I must say. Uh, but in any case, a lot depends upon that, to be sure. And Obama was, in, se in a sense, ideally suited as a candidate and as a person to bring about that kind of seismic change. But this election had a lot of the characteristics that transformational elections, critical elections, typically have. They're usually preceded by a, a precursor election that foreshadows the change, and that was true in 2006 when we gained control of the Senate, winning in places where we don't normally win, Virginia and Montana, for example. It's also true that uh, the shift typically builds upon shifting demographic patterns in the United States, as it did with the rise of the urban immigrants in the 1920s, foreshadowing what happened in the 30s with uh, FDR, and as it builds now upon <clears throat> the rise of a new minority within the states, the Hispanics. As important as this election was for uh, black Americans, symbolically, an incredibly important uh, event, surely, uh, it is also important for the rise of Hispanics uh, politically. It is also true of new, that it generally uh, energizes new elements who appear in force uh, in the, in the um, body politic and in the election, and that certainly occurred this time. It's also true that typically it involves the consolidation of one's part, one party's position in one region of the country or another, and that certainly happened here. Little notice is what has happened in the Northeast. The Republican Party, the old uh, liberal, moderate Republican Party, is largely gone in the Northeast. 23 out of 29 representatives from uh, New York will be Democrats, uh, same, same ratio in, um, in uh, New Jersey. Chris Shays, uh, the moderate Republican from Connecticut, is in a sense the last um, Republican holdout, and he went down to defeat uh, last uh, Tuesday as well. You still have the two Republican senators from, moderate Republican senators from Maine, but that's really about it. So I think you're going to see, or uh, you have seen, really, a seismic shift in American politics. Let me shift very quickly to foreign policy, and I would agree with both uh, Andrew and with Bronwyn that there is enormous room for disappointment. The level of expectations raised by Obama's victory abroad and at home in foreign policy is far beyond, I think, the capacity of the administration to deliver. Th to some degree, that's inevitable. The strategic interests of the United States do not change simply with the change in occupancy of the White House. Those strategic interests remain the same. There will be significant changes, shifts in the method, the mode, the tone, the tenor of, Amer of the conduct of American foreign policy. It will be much more consultative. It will be much more um, collaborative, to be sure. No longer will it be a Bantam cock strutting around the uh, barnyard or someone laying out a stake and expecting everyone else to fall in line <coughs> when they've never been consulted. It's also true that there will be a change in emphasis, as, as Bronwyn mentioned, uh, from Iraq to Afghanistan. Obama's made clear from the very beginning he intends to have three additional brigades sent to Afghanistan. That was all along the center of, which should have been the center of our attention in the battle against al-Qaeda. There was a briefing this past week of both campaigns, interestingly enough, by the intelligence forces uh, in the states and by the White House of, of both campaigns uh, on the situation in Afghanistan. And it does indeed involve, as Bronwyn mentioned, uh, how we go forward and to the degree to which we attempt to co-opt certain elements within the Taliban as we did with certain elements of the um, uh, population in, in Iraq. It's also true that the other, uh, and it, uh, that, that particular effort will involve a, a um, request 
that will not necessarily be welcomed in much of Europe, certainly not in Berlin and in Paris, of greater burden sharing, that old term from the, 18, the 1980s and 1990s, of burden sharing for this new consultative, cooperative, collaborative effort. It's also true there will be renewed emphasis on the Middle East uh, peace process. Sadly, sadly neglected by the Bush administration, uh, no solution in the Middle East is going to be possible ever until the, the Palestinians and the Israelis themselves come to some agreement. America cannot impose that agreement, uh, and it shouldn't. It has to be done by the participants, but nonetheless there can be consistent pressure there uh, as there was earlier in earlier democratic administrations. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Now, Sarah, are, are you, as a literary critic, but also as, a, as an American who's been over here for 10 years, are, are you able to stand back from this a bit, or are you, are you caught up in the, in the uh, euphoria that, that most uh, people share? Yeah, it's funny. I was going to use the word euphoria as well. I think that's a very good description of, of how I felt for the last uh, 36 hours or so. But I hope that I can stand back a little bit. I mean, I think that there are, uh, there are reservations that we're all talking about, um, the high expectations um, that this has raised. Um, I do think we need to resist convincing ourselves that we've just inaugurated the United States of Utopia, um, that, you know, the there are dangers uh, to that kind of euphoria um, themselves. But I also think it's hard to underestimate the symbolic import of this election. Um, and I do think there was, and, and, and as a literary critic, I do think that there was a profoundly symbolic uh, transformation that just happened. It may not turn out to be a real transformation, but the symbolism in and of itself is important and in and of itself uh, is real. Um, it was a symbolic redemption. It was a symbolic reconciliation of a rift that goes at least as far back as the Civil War. Uh, in reality, goes back farther. Uh, with respect, Andrew, I, I have to disagree profoundly with the idea that America is not a racist country. Um, within my lifetime, uh, which is less than the 40 years that you mentioned, um, it is very clear <laughs> to me um, that, uh, that racism is a profound problem in America. But it is true that the rift in America is not just about race and that the election was not just about race. Um, I think that we need to resist reading those southern precincts that Bronwyn mentioned as voting uh, crudely or simply along race lines. They were clearly voting on class lines as well. They were voting against the liberal uh, elite, the latte quaffing. You know, we know uh, that whole uh, rift as well. They were, they were very much uh, voting as a small town constituency against you know, the, the corrupt big cities um, and the decadence that all of us uh, liberal Ivy League elites uh, represent. Um, but it was about race as well. I mean, this seems to be something that we've been evading and, and yet talking about and not talking about. And, and as I tried to, to characterize how race worked, it seemed to me that this was a race about race that wasn't about race while the race was on. But when the race was over, everyone knew that it was about race because we had just transcended race. And yet race remained at the forefront of the emotional impact of the election. Now, that's as clear as I can get about what just happened um, in terms of, of race. And the, that is uh, that complication in and of itself is, I think, um, part of why this transformation was so important because we did we have seen something symbolic uh, happen here, and I agree with Bill that it will uh, prove to have been a genuine turning point. I think whether it will turn out to be a, a, a turning point and, and a realignment um, in, in you know governance in terms of governance or fiscal policy or foreign policy, uh, who knows? But I think it, it represents an attitudinal shift. Um, the problem of America ha has always been the problem of e pluribus unum of how do you get one out of many? How do you how do you deal with pluralism? How do you deal uh, with difference? And the and the splits in America. 
are not just racial splits, they're not just class splits, there's the culture wars. I mean, but there, you know, it goes all the way back to the land of freedom and the land of institutional slavery, the land of enlightenment, philosophers and Puritan theocrats. And, and the, those differences have carried all the way through. It's not like those ended, you know, in, in the 19th century. States' rights versus federalism, we're still fighting that. Uh, the urban north and the rural south, and of course, liberal and conservative. Uh, the reason why there's such a profound partisan split in America is because we have profound partisan differences. Uh, we have not had a functioning consensus about major issues of governance and social policy, from arguments over government intervention and fiscal policy to the war in Iraq or social justice, the death penalty, gun control, the question of whether zygotes are people, whether women's health should be in scare quotes, um, whether it's you know important to save polar bears. I mean, this is these are all uh, real differences in how Americans are are uh, looking at their world, uh, uh, sorry, at their country, and then uh, by extension at the world. And the election of one Messiah has not reconciled all of these differences. We all know that hypocrisy is alive and well. Uh, the economy is not. Uh, you know, Republicans are screaming about fiscal conservatism, but handing out 700 billion. Or you know, Palin um, is you know redistributing wealth in Alaska. Uh, you know, happily. Um, you know, but we also have Democrats shouting about social justice while pocketing money and kickbacks from corporate lobbyists. Um, it hasn't ended corruption, gridlock. It hasn't reformed campaign finance. And I do think that campaign finance is a real worry about um, one of the things that Obama has transformed here is the fact that you need to raise enough money to bail out Lehman's in order to run for president. But I, I do think that at the end of the day, it's ideas that uh, bring us together and it's ideas that pull us apart. And for me, one of the things that, um, that, that kind of em one, mo one of the moments that emblematized this election was the, and it was such a quick uh, move from McCain's concession speech to Obama's acceptance speech. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of us noticed that at McCain's accept, uh, concession speech, um, when he first mentioned Obama's name, uh, his, his supporters booed. And uh, when uh, Obama, in his acceptance speech in front of uh, my f uh, fellow Chicagoans, 250,000 strong, uh, supporting Obama, when he first mentioned McCain, uh, the crowd cheered. That, to me, emblematized the attitudinal shift, the move from a politics of divisiveness to um, a politics of unification. And I, I just want to end um, on a, uh, a typically sentimental note. I, I am an American, and we do feel sentimental about this, um, I think for important reasons. Obama uh, quoted Lincoln's first inaugural address when he, when he uh, said, uh, we must not be enemies, although passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. But he left out the last sentence of Lincoln's um, speech for reasons that I think are clear, but uh, I think because he couldn't say them, but I think somebody else can. And so this is what I'd like to end on, um, is the words of Lincoln. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Thank you very much. Mrs. Moneypenny. Yes, thank you. I'm very pleased I did manage to go last. <laughs> um, not least of which because I've been listening to some incredibly erudite uh, uh, foreign policy thoughts or thoughts on the American election. Actually, I came here to talk about what this meant for us and what this meant for me. Um, and, um, and Barack Obama changed my life before he was even elected because, and I'm, I'm sure actually that uh, I have the Democrats abroad to thank for this, I was invited to Elizabeth Murdoch's house. I've never been invited to Elizabeth Murdoch's house before um, and, uh, and, that, and that happened uh, in the course of this election so I, I, I really knew he was going to make a big difference to me. Um, I, <laughs> 
I also, um, I also think that uh, it's a triumph of communications, and after all, we are all here, one way or another, in the business of communication, that the Americans have managed to elect as president a man whose middle name is Hussein, which I um, absolutely thought would never, I would never see. Um, it is a momentous uh, event, and I think we should, as this says, we should be thinking what it will mean for us, and I... Um, I am waiting for the big decision from him, which still hadn't happened at the point I left the House at quarter to eight this morning, which was who's going to be the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Now, as we know, um, this has historically been a very good landing ground for Wall Street rejects, and I, we're going to have a fair few Wall Street rejects, I reckon. Uh, so I think it's, it's going to be leading by example here. Let's wait and see who he appoints. He's got no, um, and I'm very concerned with the financial world. That's what concerns me. That's what concerns my colleagues at the newspaper. Um, and we're waiting for that appointment. We think that appointment will be absolutely pivotal. Um, Obama has made no specific policy claim about what he's going to do about the financial system generally or the credit crisis. Um, but I would just make a point, uh, the one serious point I'm going to make in this, which is that the last time we elected, or we elected, the last time you elected, <laughs> sorry, I'm, even I'm carried away. <laughs> <laughs> the we're last, all Americans yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. We're all Americans now, yes. We're all Berliners now. And we, are, we are all Americans now. So the last time you elected a, a Democrat president born in August with a four in front of his age, <laughs> he went on in 1999 to sign the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, and I think that was probably the most criminal thing he ever did. Um, it was an act set up for perfectly good reasons um, in the wake of the Great Depression. It prevented people from um, launching securitization on a mass scale. It prevented all sorts of things. It was not incredibly sensible. It had its faults, and bits of it were amended in the 1980s. But the, the absolute killer repeal came in 1999, and I think that we can't go back from that, and I don't want a repeat of that. So when my 19-year-old son, who in Australia rang me up at four in the morning and said, isn't this exciting? I said, go back to sleep, I'll listen to it at seven o'clock, and I'm still waiting for the decision that America hasn't made that I'm waiting for him to make, which is this appointment of the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and it's because of that I profoundly disagree with Stryker, actually. He said that Bronwyn going to Iceland was, quote, neither here nor there in terms of Barack Obama. That's absolute bollocks. Um, you know, Barack Obama, or his predecessor, or his predecessor's predecessor, more to the point, um, made a decision to, uh, to lend money to uh, Hispanic Americans to help them buy houses, let, made the decision to repeal Glass-Steagall, made all sorts of decisions that directly led to a bunch of people in a country with a population the size of Doncaster um, take, trying to take over the world's financial system. Anyway, I will raise... Sorry, I will finish with three points. Okay, and the three points is, what does it mean for us, and what does it mean for our sponsors? How about that, as a... As a as <laughs> I'm, um, I'm still, I'm still balking from the latte quaffing quote from my writer. I can find in my notes where she said that. I'm, I'm going to rush out and guess a latte when I finish. Um, the uh, well, let's let's have, let's have a dwell on that at the moment to make it very pertinent. So uh, Taylor Bennett first is not, as Julia introduced it, a uh, communications consultancy. It's actually a headhunter. Uh, it's a executive search company specialising in communications, and I think it's got two things for them. I think first of all. They, they like change. Change brings
brings with it all sorts of vacancies which we need to get filled and the great thing about communications in the in the Obama administration or any administration is that they are political appointments unlike the UK um, the US don't use um, headhunters to fill senior government jobs Taylor Bennett on the other hand is busy at the moment filling the permanent secretary for communications for the UK government so I think they will be very pleased to see change and the other thing they will be very pleased to see is the um, elevation of people's aspirations from an ethnic minority I would say we are all in the communications business here Uh, if you look around this room you will not see much trace of any ethnic minority and Taylor Bennett are sponsoring currently a program to bring black and Asian minority people into the PR and communications workforce so I think that would be a very good thing for them Secondly, Bank of New York. Well, Bank of New York is a cracking organisation. You may never have heard of it because it's possibly the most boring bank in America. And... um which could not be a better thing. And uh, they will love the fact that there is a financial crisis and that Barack Obama uh, may or may not be able to fix it, probably not, um, because that is the business they do, which is incredibly dull global, global custodian stuff, which has caused them to be incredibly successful. I mean, most of you don't know they've taken over whole swathes of GE Financial's business. They're probably one of the largest employers in Manchester now from a standing start to two or three years ago. Um, they've contributed enormously to our economy because they are boring, they have low margins, and they're very reliable. So I, I applaud the Bank of New York, and I, and I think they will benefit enormously. Okay, and then let's get on to Edelman while we're at it. Okay, so what, how will Edelman benefit from this? Well, Edelman, of course, is very big in the States and will, will um, be very successful there. But when I last looked, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I literally wrote this down as this went on, um, Edelman was the biggest privately owned uh, communications consultancy in the world. Is that still true? Uh, well, do you know what? Next year, nobody who's in any public company will be able to spend any money. Will be. <laughs> Did you walk past that breakfast bar? Do you think? How do you think shareholders would feel about that? <laughs> I, they are going to be the only people able to hire anybody, the only people to entertain any clients. So I think the fact that we've got a young, inexperienced Democrat president who still hasn't appointed a chief secretary to the Treasury <laughs> means that we're all going to make our light bandits. And it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much. And now we should go very quickly to some questions. Dominic Weeks, Fishburn Hedges. Uh, I just wondered if, any, if anyone on the panel had a view on, on who the Barracks uh, victory gives more momentum to in terms of UK politics, because we saw Cameron and Brown trying to jump on the bandwagon yesterday. Uh, very good question. Bronwyn, you've been thinking about this. Have you? I, I haven't at all, but I, um, <laughs> I say I've been lost in Iceland, which I think is relevant to all kinds of <laughs> things. Um, but I, I think neither. Um, everyone is try, going to get a, try and get a piece of this, this glory, but Obama is going to inevitably be very introverted. I mean, they're concerned with America's own problems in the first few months. I think it's very hard for um, Gordon Brown or, or David Cameron to get much mileage out of it. They certainly were trying yesterday, though. It, was, it, 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 was, it's, it, sounded, uh, it sounded funny, actually, uh, and a little bit silly. And really, it doesn't matter for another, what, 18 months or so until 2010 but they are all trying. Uh, another question? I'll, I'll repeat the question. You want to know what's happened to Joe Biden and what is his role? Um, I think really the, and I'll let Bill get to this uh, very quickly, but his, his role at, that he took very much you know, a back seat during the final weeks of the campaign and 
but he will have a larger role uh, once the administration is up and running. Yes, he was asked uh, by Obama if he wished a portfolio, a particular field to take an interest in and the lead on, and he said no, that he just wanted to be, since he knows the Senate so well, having been there 30 years, wanted to be um, in on the, the strategy in the Senate and getting things through. I think you'll see him play a, a very responsible role in the, um, in the Senate and helping there and overcoming the uh, few votes that we lack to, to close a filibuster. Andrew, you want to say something about that? Um, yes, historically, of course, there's a very important uh, constitutional role for the vice president, which is to wake up every morning and inquire after the health of the president. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Nick, back there. My name is Nick Pisani from Intelligence Squared. Uh, what struck me most of all, I think, about the election was the generational change. Um, the difference in the audience uh, uh, in Chicago and in Arizona. And I profoundly disagree with what Andrew Roberts had to say, because I think one thing everybody here hopes is that the right-wing Christian conservatives will never again be able to get their levers on power. Um, that, that, that the Republican Party, if it reforms, will have to sort of adopt some Cameroonian changes and modernize itself completely if it's to stay relevant. Good point, I think. Sarah, why don't you address yeah. it first and then Andrew? Um, I think that's really, really important. And if I'd had more than five minutes, it would have been literally the next thing that I talked about. Um, I think the generational shift is, um, first of all, we all know how well uh, Obama polled among young people. But for me, the generational shift is also related to questions about education, um, which, I, which I think is interesting. What's happened is that young college-educated people are moving into the South and shifting those precincts around. Um, what we saw is, I think, a profound rejection of Sarah Palin's know-nothing populism, um, which is which is related to evangelicalism, but not the same thing. Her, you know, that shtick about, well, I, I wasn't one of those rich kids who got a passport and went off to Europe. Um, and I was like, well, actually, you don't have to be rich to get a passport, and you can backpack through Europe, and you might just have some, some intellectual curiosity. And what you, uh, what you, what, what I think that we saw was, uh, and actually, there was, a, there was a, a black man in Chicago who was on the radio yesterday, some of you might have heard this, who said, I think it's great that a black man can be president, but mostly I'm excited to have a president who doesn't need to be told what to say from a teleprompter. Um, and that the, um, so that there's, the, the, for me, it's the suspicion of, uh, of education that this generational shift is really representing, that we have young people who are rejecting that out of hand. And we have a move from the urban-rural split, the small-town values that she's trying to talk about, again, because of social mobility. And I think new technologies uh, has something to say about this as well, because people, what you have is young people moving to North Carolina, to Colorado, shifting Colorado, uh, Democrat, because college-educated kids have, have moved there, relocated there. And so I think it's really changed the electoral map as well. Andrew, Sarah Palin was the uh, was the <laughs> was the uh, was the VP. I don't think that uh, people vote because of VPs anyhow. I think that uh, she was put on the ticket in order to energise the right wing Christians who you um, who you uh, criticise. But I mean, um, John McCain was neither right wing nor a Christian. I don't think this can really be seen in those terms. And um, when uh, we were thinking also about the uh, the crowd booing uh, the name of, um, of Obama, the, the Republican crowd that McCain was speaking to, one has to remember that uh, they lost. And if um, it, it strikes me that if uh, Obama had mentioned McCain's name in a losing speech, you would have also had a very negative reaction uh, to that. So I think it's just a question of having uh, lost, won or lost rather than anything to do with uh, Democrats being innately more polite than Republicans. 
Bill, did you did you want to make a very <coughs> quick point so we can get to another question? Very quickly, that uh, younger generational appeal in part plays into, I think, the seismic shift that's going on. There will be more of those people around and fewer of those in the elder generation four years from now. Beyond that, um, we've seen these religious uh, revivals and religious movements in American history periodically. It takes about 30 years for them to burn out. We saw them in the 1820s, 1850s, 1920s, 1950s. Um, there'll be a struggle for control of the, of the Republican Party that was already underway uh, before this election between the three components of social conservatives, economic conservatives, and defense conservatives. There's also a change among young evangelicals who are no longer willing to be, as there is also among Roman Catholics, no longer willing to be one-issue one voters. Many young evangelicals are, are attracted to different positions on the environment, for example, seeing, it, seeing their role as being good stewards of God's inheritance uh, to man. Uh, so there's some real changes going on even there. Hi, uh, Darren Kaplan, B12 Public Affairs. Um, Bill Barnard, you talked earlier on about whether there's a realignment, and I think that's the key question. I'm interested in asking the panel whether they think this election was an actual realignment or just a short-term reaction to the Bush years. The reason I say that is when you actually look at the figures, they weren't that amazing. It wasn't a landslide. In the battleground states, a lot of them are won 50% to 49%, and I actually wasn't amazed by the results as they came in. So I'm wondering whether it was just a reaction to the last eight years or there has been a fundamental realignment. I think that in terms of the, uh, the numbers, the Democrats haven't won more than 50% of the popular vote for 150 years, with the exception of FDR and LBJ. Um, and, uh, and those are, are ex exceptions for important reasons. I think that so from within that standpoint, that extra 3% that Obama got w w moved from um, a kind of solid Democratic win to, to what was clearly a mandate, if not a landslide. And I think that, that but also the, the electoral colleges, um, the way that he carried the electoral colleges, I think does demonstrate um, to a certain degree that he's that he's moving with the, with the population, if you like, and that there is an attitudinal shift going on there. I think that, and, and it goes back to that generational point as well, that, uh, that we have a sense of a younger, more tolerant more inclusive um, America that's growing up and, and we've seen the end of I do think we've seen the end of the 60s culture wars um, at le as we understood them I'm not saying the culture wars are over but the 60s culture wars that Hillary Clinton would have also uh, extended and reignited because of the Clinton's symbolic role in that um, I do think has come to an end I don't think we're gonna have another election fought over Vietnam for instance um, so that in that sense there are the, the, the issues that uh, are going to be determining elections I think are changing Andrew, quickly. It seems to me that um, uh, you cannot extrapolate something as massive as that from a 3% um, swing. I'm sorry, it's, a 3% is one in, um, what is it, 33 voters changing their minds. You can't say that this is uh, something as huge as either, as, um, as Bill said, some, something that's going to dominate for the next generation. Uh, or, as uh, Dr. Churchill was saying, um, something which is going to change America forever. It's, th it's one in 33 voters. I would, but I would like to say about Dr. Churchill, uh, Churchill is that um, I think it is fabulously brave of her to come to Edelman and denounce corporate lobbyists. <laughs> Hi, uh, Matt Peacock from BG Group. Um, where does the panel think uh, will be found the biggest gap between poetry and prose? My, my top pick would be energy policy. Um, uh, looking at the administration of Kevin Rudd in Australia, uh, another new shiny administration elected with a huge weight of expectation. Um, those of you who have followed this will have noted that um, 
the, the move to a low carbon future has proven to be a very hard, high stone wall over which a new administration is struggling to, to climb. But what would be the panel's view of the biggest gap between poetry and prose? Bronwyn. Health, climate change and Iraq, uh, you might as well pick the, 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 the most obvious things. And, what, and I, I'm not at all sure that America can get out of Iraq, which has been treated as it, quiet, problem solved. And the capacity of any one of six groups there to cause immediate trouble. Uh, is, 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 is enormous. But I, I agree with you on energy policy. Um, very slow-moving uh, thing to try and change American policy on that. Very expensive. America doesn't have the money for it. Same on healthcare. My name is Trish Evans from Westminster University. Uh, there's been an argument ra raging in my household, in my family, for the last two months about what the Clintons' next jobs might be, in particular Hillary's. Um, uh, really a question to William, with your expert knowledge, do you have any inside information for us, or speculation for us? Um, at least I have hoped that she might consider an appointment to the Court of St. James, or both of them, joint ambassadors. Is that too lowly for them? Are they going to take jobs in the new administration? No, Bill, I think, were, were you not a supporter of Hillary Clinton? Mm, in, initially. In the early, okay. Yeah. But I, I was never had any problems with Obama because in no. policy issues you couldn't get a cigarette paper between the two of them. It was just a personality thing and, and commitments earlier to the Clinton uh, administration. Um, I don't know. We, we simply don't know. Uh, certainly, uh, Bill Clinton has a great affection for this country, having studied here and returning quite frequently. He has interest here as well with uh, blood and and, uh, and others. But um, the um, th there is a role for her in the Senate. Uh, she will not play quite the role that Ted Kennedy has played as being an icon of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. But nonetheless, with his eventual passing, there is an enormous leadership role in the Senate and, and a role for her to play, and particularly in health care. I mean, the gracious thing for the Obama administration would be to turn to her and to ask her to lead the effort uh, along with Joe Biden in the Senate, and I think that may very well take place. Uh, w one very quick point, though, about the uh, – is this a reaction to Bush rather than a seismic change? Certainly, this election was very much a reaction to the last eight years, but the potential for seismic uh, change is there, and I would argue that it's not just the swing in the presidential level. Look at what happened down ballot. It's that that makes you think there is the potential for significant change here. A lot will ride up upon uh, the record of the administration, to be sure. But there are things moving afoot in uh, American politics domestically. Thanks. There's a gentleman back there and then the, the woman in uh, red in front of him. Peter York. A new American administrations are usually payback time. And it's usually very obvious who the payback will be to in terms of individuals and money, large money groupings. It's not so obvious this time. Who does Obama owe? Who has he got to do things for? I think that's a, that's a very good question, and it's, it's, not, as, it's not as obvious as it, as it often is. I think some people would argue that he that he owes the unions and that therefore it will be a, a more protectionist trade regime. Uh, other people, however, would say that, that that's not what's going to happen, uh, that there was some talk of that during the campaign. It looked like that, but that, uh, that he's more of a pragmatist and will not move in that direction. Bill, what do you think? On the issue of protectionism, but let's 
be very clear. Historically, the Democratic Party was the party of low tariffs, the Republicans of high. In the post-World War II era, when American industry was dominant and could compete anywhere, it was easy to be uh, for uh, globalization and for free trade. It's been more difficult for the Democratic Party in particular because of certain areas of the country that we represent in the, in the uh, immediate past. On the other hand, protection is, a, is not a party-specific issue. It is a district specific issue. Neither party can produce a majority from its own ranks for free trade. They will, you, whoever became president would have to do what Bill Clinton did, which was to rely upon the bulk of his own party and those he can bring along in the other party in order to resist the move towards protectionism, in order to resist the kinds of steps that were taken in the 1920s and early 1930s that made the 1930s and the Depression so disastrous. Thanks. Uh, there's the women here, and then uh, there are a couple in the back. Good. My name is Sophie Gunter and I work with the Australian Government. My question is one of how do we get the excitement into English, British politics, I should say. It's a Freudian slip. Um, what has characterized what's been going on the last 48 hours is huge excitement, huge engagement. Um, the use of the internet has brought people to vote who've never voted before. And all we see in the papers in Britain is apathy, dislike of corruption, and disengagement. So what does the U.S. election mean for us? I'd like to see some more excitement and engagement. What does the panel think? Yes. I, I d would like to make a point there. Um, but uh, one way of getting engagement will probably go down your route, which is to legislate. Um, in, Aust in Australia, um, you have to vote, otherwise you get fined. So, you know, that seems to me a very straightforward way of getting engagement and a rather draconian one. Um, the, uh, but uh, they, have, they have put a young person who has, I think, and we can all learn from this, and I think it will make a difference to what the UK do, is that the use in this um, election of the internet has been something we've never seen before. The fact that he could walk away from um, government funding and say, I'm going to rely on my own funding, and that the Democrats have used the internet so effectively to raise so much money in such tiny amounts um, means that they have reached into parts of the world that, you know, and parts of the electorate that other people haven't reached. So I think that the use of the internet is how we will see that in this country, if, assuming we don't go down the Australian route. Mind you, I have to say that Australians, let's have a word for the Australians here. Another way, of course, to get an um, engagement is to appoint a woman as your deputy prime minister, which they have done, of course. And I'm a great favour of women uh, in, in, in positions like this, including Sarah Palin, because it provides a lot of employment for the economy. You can't, as a woman, go anywhere on television or anywhere in public without getting your hair done, which, uh, which uh, means that you, you have to do that. And uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia has solved that by entering into a long-term relationship with a hairdresser. Which I, uh... I think we have time for about two more questions. One, there was one way in the back. Uh, I was just interested to... Sorry, Leslie Smith from ARC. Um, all the papers are reporting this morning that the turnout was 64% or thereabouts, which in Britain at a general election would be regarded as a crisis, not a victory. Um, uh, and actually picking up on the remark about uh, Australia and compulsory voting, what do you think could galvanise the remaining 36% of Americans to go to the polls? And secondly, does that not mean that you know, the Democrats have been suffering from a disaffected voters if Obama can't maintain the enthusiasm for four years, he'll have great difficulty getting re-elected if those people go, you know, abandon the polls once again. I think it was the largest uh, turnout, some would argue, since 1908, which doesn't, you know, as you say, it doesn't necessarily speak well for the American system. The last time the turnout was really close to this was 
Kennedy-Nixon in, in 1960. But, um, Sarah, what do you think would increase turnout um, if this didn't? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's a fair point. I mean, look, this is, as we all started out by saying, and we have, you know, kind of maybe lost sight of a little bit, that, that as exciting as this is, there are, there are, you know, it hasn't completely fixed everything, you know, by a long shot. And so, no, I mean, we don't know that he's, you know, he had 95% of African Americans voted for him. You know, there were stories of, there was a, a woman on, on the BBC saying that, that her father, who was 78 years old, uh, had never voted before because he couldn't see the point. And finally, you know, this brought him to the polls. Well, if Obama doesn't sustain that kind of excitement, then he's going to lose those kinds of first-time voters um, that he got in. Uh, they had, they, I think there was an 80% turnout in Virginia, um, or was it North Carolina? It was one of the two, uh, one of the two Southern Republican states um, that was, you know, that was swinging. And, and is he going to be able to maintain that kind of turnout? Probably not. On the other hand, if he can solidify, if he can be a good president, if he can actually do, he can't achieve all of the things he said he's going to achieve. We're all in agreement with that. But if he can seem to actually be making some, some, you know, strives toward those things, if he can actually seem to be turning things around, if he can just turn in a solid performance, then he might actually uh, begin to uh, convince some of the doubters. I mean, a lot of the doubters were not racist, small town, you know, know nothing. Some of them doubted him because he doesn't have any experience. Some of them doubted him because they don't actually know what he stands for. Some of them doubted him because his rhetoric is fuzzy. So if it can turn out that there is something behind all of that and that he's a decent president, then he might just start to convince some of the people who do vote but were dubious about him. The other thing, we'll have one more question. The other thing I would add is that, that it, it's important to remember that the American system is a, is a federal system, and people vote in lots of elections. Local elections, to some people, matter at least as much as, uh, as, as the federal elections, and I think that's a, a point worth making. Anyway, one more question, please. Thank you. CBS News. Uh, Radio 4 had a rather amusing piece this morning about a, a race, a hypothetical race between President Sarkozy and Prime Minister Brown to be first to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and have a say. It went on to speculate that perhaps uh, Prime Minister Brown could take on an advisory capability akin to one that we haven't seen since Harold Macmillan mentored and advised President Kennedy. I'd be curious from the Brits on the panel about their view on Brown's influence on Obama. Thanks. Bronwyn. Sorry, I was distracted by the comparison of Brown to Macmillan. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would love to have an advisory role uh, for Obama. The world is competing for that position, as well as a couple of thousand um, overqualified people in the States. I think he's going to be lucky to get a lot of face time, uh, beyond the basics. Um, I, when, I, when you mention the uh, Macmillan uh, uh, equation, it reminds me of uh, after Macmillan made the speech about how he wanted Britain to be, uh, to be Greece to America's Rome, a um, Labour member got up in the House of Commons and uh, asked Macmillan as a uh, double first uh, uh, classicist from Balliol whether it wasn't true that the Greeks in the Roman Empire were slaves. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and Macmillan had to admit that the ones in Rome, yes, were. <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think Brown actually is going to be uh, listened to quite a lot in, um, in Washington for the simple reason that uh, the, the first thing that Obama has got to deliver are um, extra troops from NATO in Afghanistan. And uh, so Brown is going to be a pretty key person, both in providing a few more, 
and um, more importantly, in trying to get the Ger Germans and the French to. I don't personally think it's going to happen, but it might, and it would be wonderful if it did. But, um, but that will be the key uh, reason that Brown will be listened to in Washington. And it's the right reason. It's the reason that British um, prime ministers have been listened to historically. Thank you. I hope that, uh, that, that at least some of you, if not all of you, would like to uh, stay for coffee afterwards. I think we have, have some time. Uh, the panelists, some of them at least, will be around uh, and will be happy to talk to you. And I, uh, I would very much like to thank them for coming this morning and sharing their views with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.